Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to let you guys know that our partnership with Amazon is working, and it's because of you. As we've told you every single week, you go to our website, hazardground.com, you click on the Sponsors tab, or go to the bottom of the homepage and click on the Amazon button there. Go right to Amazon. You do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you spend, and we donate that back to some of the great charities you've heard right here on the Hazard Ground. This week, we made a donation to the Pat Tillman Foundation, a big, big supporter of veterans, and also a lot of Pat Tillman scholars have been featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So thank you so much for what you guys are doing for the podcast. Thank you for using our Amazon partnership and allowing us to continue to support veterans in each and every way. Continue to support the podcast. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And keep up with the show and all we have going on. So we certainly appreciate everything you guys are doing for us. With that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a former Navy SEAL who, after 9-11, left the Navy, transferred over to the Army to become a warrant officer and an aviator, entering the most prestigious flight unit in the military, the 160th SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And he also ended up going to teach at West Point one of the two actual commands for a warrant officer in West Point. He spent 30 years total in the military. He is now retired. He is Mike Rutledge joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Mike, welcome. Thank you for being here. Mark, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. It just, I, I have to chuckle because it's like freaking unreal what you were able to do. First of all, 30 years, not many guys actually get that long that aren't a general, right? I mean, it's just because it's the way it is. But uh, for those Army guys listening, they know when you get the Warren community, it's kind of like a cult. You get to stay as long as you want. Um, but that said, just a, a completely amazing career. I did fail to mention, and I want to get this out at the beginning, 16 deployments in 13 years as an aviator. That is just insanity. It is unreal. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, glad you're still safe and in one piece and back. But <laughs> let's go back to the beginning, Mike, and, and tell us why and when you got in the Navy. So I joined the Navy uh, early 1990 uh, before actual Desert Storm kicked off. Um, how I got there is kind of an interesting story. I never actually planned on being a Navy SEAL. That wasn't my uh, original plan. I always wanted to be a Navy pilot because I kind of grew up in the Top Gun era. And uh, I was a horrible student. Um, completely unqualified. I just wanted to be a pilot. I didn't know exactly that you had to have qualifications for that. So uh, I went to the Navy recruiter and said, I want to be a, a Navy pilot. And he kind of laughed at me and said, well, how about this? How about you can enlist? And you're barely qualified for that. So uh, he said, hey, I can make you a naval air crewman, which is almost like a pilot. So hook, line, and sinker, signed up for it. Um, you know, a year later, not only was I not flying F-14s off the carrier, I was a crew chief on a CH-46 helicopter delivering cheese balls and sodas back and forth to the ships during Desert Storm. Um, so I was kind of disgruntled. So I did that for a little less than three years. I was stationed in Guam, which is pretty traumatic for a farm kid from Illinois. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sitting on the ramp one day after flying for six or seven hours, just sweating in the tropical heat. And here comes this helicopter lands and these guys with, with beards and big, huge muscles and long hair, you know, come walking off the helicopter wearing UDT shorts and tank tops. And I'm like, who in the hell are those guys? And somebody said, uh, well, they're Navy SEALs. I'm like, they're in our Navy? 
And uh, so that was it. There was no chest beating. You know, that was before the days of the internet, books and movies and all that. And I'm like, well, I don't know what they do, but if they're in the Navy, I want that job. So I went up to the career counselor and said, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And literally, there's just a piece of paper you signed. I went and took a PT test and a swim test. And, you know, seven months later, I was in BUDS. All right. But see, here's the funny part about that. You literally had no idea what you were getting into. Had I known what I got into, I guarantee I probably would have done it. So <laughs> ignorance, was, ignorance, <laughs> ignorance was like the majority of that victory. Okay. So you get to BUDS, and we've told this several different times uh, on the podcast, but since you have no idea what you're getting into, uh, what is your first impression of, of when you first get there? So obviously when I got orders for BUDS, you know, then I started reading books and working out a lot and kind of, you know, buying into the, the propaganda, um, you know, nothing but blonde hair and big beach muscles and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, this is going to be great. I can't wait to be a team guy. Um, that came to a screeching halt in the first day or two when I'm like, holy shit, what have I gotten myself into? Um, completely overwhelmed. I was not the stud that I thought I was. And here I find myself eking my way through every single day, you know, for seven months, um, thinking every day, this is going to be the day that I'm not going to finish. Um, so, you know, if you've heard any of the stories, some guys are like, Oh, I, I loved it. I thrived. I mean, the, the whole brotherhood thing was really cool, but I mean, it was a daily struggle for me every single day. Cause I was not a great runner. You know, I've never been less than 200 pounds since I was 16 years old. So I am not the gazelle. I'm more like the, the Buffalo, the lung shop. Right. Buffalo. Um, I was a great swimmer and I was good at PT, but everything else I pretty much sucked at. Um, I think my only saving grace is I burned so many bridges in the, the naval aviation community as an enlisted guy that I had to make it because I had nowhere else to go if I failed. So that was probably uh, more of a motivation than, than what was laying ahead of me. Um, but I mean, I had a really hard time with buds and I think anybody who tells you they didn't think about quitting every single day um, is kind of a bull faced liar. You know, see, now it's funny. I'm sorry to cut you off. Didn't quit, but go ahead, Mike. But here's the thing, and so I'm sorry to cut you off. But I I ask this question all the time of guys who go through buds because I I get a variety of different answers, and I almost feel foolish asking it because I know the whole thing is tough. But for you, what was harder, the physical stuff or the mental challenge every day of not quitting, having to gruel through this whole thing, and realize that tomorrow is going to suck more than today. Uh, me personally, believe it or not, it was the physical stuff. Um, I mean, I kind of had a marginally rough childhood, so I was sort of pissed off at the world, which I think is a great technique for making it through challenging events. Mm-hmm. Um, but the physical stuff, like I said, I was a crappy runner. So every time we had to do a run, it was an absolute significant emotional event. And it was like a life victory every time I passed one. There was, you know, a few that I didn't pass that I had to pass a second time where it was like life or death. Um, so, I mean, the physical was always it was just always nagging at me um, because you do a lot of running and buds. And if you're a crappy runner, you know, life is not easy on you. Um, So for me, it was physical. And of course, you know, there's always mental trials, um, but there's never a point where there were certainly place times where I was almost broken by the the mental anguish of buds and the games that they play and, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, for me, it was always physical. If there was something that was going to break me, it was going to be the fact that I couldn't swim fast enough or couldn't run fast enough. But, you know, as you find out, get some maturity behind you, you find out that a lot of your physical limitations are really limited by your, your mental capacity sure, to deal yeah. with it. Yeah. So, I mean, one kind of holds into the other. 
Let me ask you about the uh, the bell. You know, uh, when guys went to drop on requests, and you know, for those who may be a first time listener to the podcast, that we say it all the time at Buds at Navy SEAL training, there's a bell. You can walk up anytime you want, ring the bell, and quit, and you get to go home. Uh, and I always wonder what that sort of did for guys who who either mentally anguished or, as you talked about, thought about quitting. When you heard someone else ring the bell, uh, especially when there's someone you didn't think would ever ring the bell, what did it do for you mentally? Uh, actually, I think it's quite the opposite of what you would believe. It's completely mentally empowering um, because I distinctly remember um, some guys left and right of me, uh, a guy who was best man at my wedding, uh, who ended up being a, a legendary uh, SEAL Team 6 operator, just recently retired, um, and he and I were roommates and swim buddies for a long time. But I remember him sitting next to me, and there was another kid on my other arm. We were standing in the water, you know, arm in arm, shivering in the surf, and uh, all three of us were roommates. And we'd been friends for a couple months. And uh, so as soon as he showed some weakness, you know, he said, I think I'm going to quit. And Jerry, the guy next to me, uh, he goes, well, then go fucking quit. And it was pretty funny because as soon as you show that weakness, you know, you'd expect somebody to say, no, don't quit. Stick with us. But even at that stage, I think everyone realizes that if you're going to quit now, when we get to the end of this, you're going to quit somewhere else. Right. And so. You know, I think there's a little mentality in that, that um, you recognize that. And it's not like sharks smelling blood in the water. It's just more of, you know, realizing that time and place that this job isn't for you. Um, So all that to say is when someone quit, I always personally found it completely personally empowering. um, Because in my mind, I'm like, you know what? There's another one that quit and I'm still here. And you just kind of use those little victories to power you through you know, each and every single day and every event and evolution it takes to get to the end of the race. It's pretty amazing. So when you finally graduate, Buds, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? You're like, I'm glad it's over, but I mean, how proud of yourself are you? Uh, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you're, you're getting your teeth kicked in for, for six plus months. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, you know, it's half euphoria, but on the other hand, um, you know, for that whole six months of training, you're completely getting screwed over at every turn. So you're really paranoid. And so you feel a little bit of euphoria and victory, but in the back of your mind, you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, you know, and it's always that case. And that's just, that's just one of the things of any sort of elite special operations training is you're, you're so trained to expect the worst all the time that you rarely get a chance to enjoy the victories. Um, so it's a very, you know, you got to remember that's a, a very short period of, of enjoying you know, the fruits of your labor, because a couple of days later, you're right back at it. And uh, I distinctly remember guys thinking, oh, my gosh, as soon as I get out of buds, you know, I'll never have to run again and life will be easy. And and no truer words have ever been spoken than one of my buds instructors said, gents, if you think this is hard, it gets colder, wetter in the teams. And that's absolutely true. Um, you know, for all of its chaos, buds is very controlled, planned and, and mitigated chaos. But when you get in the teams and you're, you know, riding a Zodiac in the middle of the Pacific in the wintertime and eight foot swells and people are throwing up and, you know, and all that is three hours to get to a, an oil platform where you're operating all night and then get back in that boat or, you know, all the crappy things you can do that are physically uncomfortable. You know, there's no, there's no bell to ring. There's no um, training command, you know, safety officer on site to stop things when they get hairy. I mean, it's, it's the real deal. And that's not even real combat. That's just training stuff. So, you know, that, that didn't get any easier in the teams. In fact, it probably ratcheted it up tenfold just because now that's the new standard. That's what's expected of you. Um, you know, and there's, at least in buds, 
in the back of your mind, you know, every evolution only lasts a determined amount of time. Right. And then it stops. Yeah. You know, there's a beginning and there's an end to everything above. So, you know, if you just hang on long enough, it's going to end. and You're either going to get a break or move on to something new. And so when you get to the teams, it's not like that. Like you're done when the job's done and it may last two hours. It may last all night and you don't know how it's going to end. So different mentality, but uh, a life in the teams, you know, or for any special operations unit, Ranger Regiment, Special Forces, ODAs, whatever. Um, it's not easier in the unit. It's just different and more is expected of you. Okay, so when you graduate, buds, year, month, year, time frame, just so we have some, you know, uh, context here. Uh, well, and it's different now um, than when I went through. I mean, I went through in class 197 and graduated in 1994, I believe. Um, you know, and back then, buds was six months long, and then your entire class went to jump school at Fort Benning, and that lasted roughly a month. And then you came back and you went through what was called. Uh, STT or SEAL tactical training, which is run individually by each team. And that lasted about six months. When you were done with that, then you got put into your operational platoon. And then you were uh, kind of under probation for about six or seven months or so. Right. And then you finally got to where you tried it, you know, after a large board of, you know, being examined by all the, the chiefs and the, the team and an interview with the CEO and, and what have you. Then you finally got to where you tried it. And now it's different where you still go through six months of BUDS. And then you immediately, I think the whole class goes to jump school and free fall school. And then they jump right into uh, SEAL qualification training, which is six months long. And this is before you ever get to your team. And then they get their Trident when they graduate SQT. And then they report to their team already with a Trident, already qualified to get into their platoons. And so it's different, you know, kind of six of one half that does the other. But I'm sure the product is just as good or better. It's just a different pipeline um, than when I did it. But you're looking at, you're basically looking at a year and a half to two years from the time you start to the time you actually get into a deployable platoon or a task force and a team now. And since it's prior to 9-11, what, what sort of missions are you doing? Where are you in the world? I mean, there's not much going on, at least overtly. Covertly, obviously, there's always something going on. But uh, what sort of missions were you doing prior to 9-11? Uh, well, we were still, believe it or not, we still had sanctions that we were enforcing. Um, there were remnants of Desert Storm. So, you know, there's still a lot of embargoes on Iraq. So we were doing, uh, um, you know, Iraqi flag tanker boardings. We were doing a lot of foreign internal defense, which is not necessarily the SEAL team's forte. That's really the domain of uh, special, special forces, ops. the ODAs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're really good at it. That's that's their bread and butter. Um, but you're right. You know, without a, a war or a true conflict on, it's kind of hard to, to figure out what you're training for. Um, a lot of recons and just a lot of training. Um, you know, kind of like building host nation capacities for future conflicts. Um, but you talk about getting restless. There's nothing worse than, than a team of operators that doesn't have any place to blow it off. So, you know, the usual, like you think of lots of alcohol related incidents, lots of fighting, you know, lots of on trips and all that kind of stuff. So, um, great times, but not a lot of productivity going on. Um, you know, I so, chuckle just because I understand. <laughs> yeah, not because I'm laughing. Same with any unit, you just can't you just can't keep guys like that on a leash, right? Um, you know, and expect them to be choir boys all the time. Like I said, that goes for anything. I mean, I've seen some some ranger companies tear up entire towns oh, yeah. by the same token. So, oh yeah, um, yeah. So you know, there really wasn't anything going on. And then, of course, nine eleven occurs. Where are um, you? I was actually de- I was actually deployed during nine eleven to Sri Lanka. Um, we were actually doing some some foreign internal defense stuff and some recon stuff in Sri Lanka, um, buried in a dirty little hotel with 
with uh, a couple light bulbs and and uh that was it we were there for a month and then we had to get evac out of sri lanka to get back to the unit to kind of reset and deploy for those who don't know sri lanka is just a small little island off the coast of india in the indian ocean so you're in a part of the world where really like how long does it take you to get back to the states at that point uh, it took, we actually holed up in this hotel in Sri Lanka for about five or six days until an MC-130 could come get us at the Colombo airport. Um, you know, under the cover of darkness, everybody was armed. They just dropped the ramp, didn't even shut down, threw all our stuff on. But you can imagine right after 9-11, all the tactical airlift in the world was pretty much mobilized for other stuff. So we were not in the right place at the right time for that. So it took us a good couple weeks um, kind of hopscotching across the globe to get back to the States to kind of reset. Were you chomping at the bit at that point in time? You're like, we just need to get back and get get a mission and go. I mean, what were you thinking and feeling? Well, it was because everybody was chomping at the bit. I mean, right. you know, I, I don't care if you were a private in a transportation unit somewhere in the army or the Oklahoma guard. I mean, everybody was chomping. At the bit yeah. But you guys know you're the tip of the spear. You guys know you're the first out the door. Well, yeah, but nobody knew you know, at that point, if you got which direction to point the spear, <laughs> nobody knew what they were doing. Right. You know, I mean, certainly, you know, certainly the Joint Chiefs and that level, they had a plan at that point. Um, but everybody's just kind of cocked and locked, waiting to do something, and not knowing what that something is. Um, you know, at the same time, you got to remember too that whole month or two after the attacks, you know, the country was still really in shock. Um, you yeah. know, and waiting for the other shoe to drop. Is there more attacks coming? Where are we vulnerable? And it's hard to concentrate on the defensive portion of it and at the same time start thinking forward of, all right, how are we going to best prepare um, to go, you know, fight the enemy? And we know it's going to be in the Middle East somewhere. We know it's going to be Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, like, we know that's where it's coming from. You know, and, and even through the, the late 90s, we all knew that Osama bin Laden, you know, was going to be an adversary kind of passively trained for it. Um, but, you know, none of these special operations forces had really focused solely on that because nobody knew exactly where our next threat was going to come from. It's different now. I mean, as a Department of Defense, we're much more aware of where our potential threats are, I think, than we were at that time. Um, but, yeah, there's just a lot of unknowns at that that particular time period. You know, we'll say that the two to three months after 9-11 – of where guys were going to be and what they were going to be doing. And, you know, not having a major conflict like that in our memory since Vietnam, you know, everybody for all we knew, everybody was going to go to war and, you know, like World War II, half of us weren't going to come back. And that was the worst case scenario. But like I said, the unknown, that was the big elephant in the room. All right. So for you, and I just want to lay out the timing of everybody, because look, the initial invasion of Afghanistan starts in October. You get the major bombing campaign in November into December, um, and that's the end of 2001. In 2002, for you, you make the decision to leave the teams and transfer to the Army. Take me through that whole decision. So that particular deployment when I was in Sri Lanka, this is before 9-11, you know, just literally a couple months before 9-11, I had already started my application to transfer to the Army to become a warrant officer aviator. So because I you always wanted to fly, right? That was, I mean, that was... I, yeah, I always wanted to fly. I mean, I had a uh, aviation background growing up. Um, I loved my time in the SEAL teams. It was the most broadening, hardening growth experience that a man can go through. Um, but, you know, after doing it for, at that point, doing it for seven and a half years, 
you know, I realized that the clock was ticking and I wanted to be a military aviator. I tried to actually get into Navy flight school. I was too old at the time. We were working with the 160th SOAR guys a lot and, you know, talking to their warrant officers and they're like, hey, you can do this. This is how we'll, you know, we can shepherd you through the process. So I had started the process um, to put in an application. When you told the team guys, what did they say? You know, believe it or not, they were actually very, very supportive because um, the SEAL teams, as well as the Range Regiment guys and SF, I mean, all of us have a tremendous amount of respect for the 160th SOAR aviators and crew chiefs. You know, all the 160th guys. We all did because they're they're neutral brokers. You know, they service everybody. I don't care if you're uh, an SFODA or a, you know, a, a Delta squadron or a Ranger Regiment company. Um, you know, you get treated the same way. You still get the same level of excellence no matter what service you're from. So we all have a lot of respect regardless of what service for the 160th guys. So – I decided, well, I want to be one of the best helicopter pilots in the world. So where else do you go? You know, and so that's kind of where I set my goals. Now, at the time, I didn't know how lofty those goals were. I didn't realize, again, I didn't realize what I got myself into um, or what I was striving for. It just seemed like, yeah, I want to go to the 160th. Um, so I'd started my application before that deployment. I worked on it during the deployment, like different places we'd stop. I'd get a flight physical here. I'd do an interview here. Um, so as soon as I came back in December of 2001, um, I dropped my application, had the full support of everybody in the SEAL teams all the way up to the Bureau of Naval Personnel, which I thought was wow. you know, impossible. Yeah, it sounds, um, sounds like it. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. There were a couple of guys that said denied, denied. And then I just kind of went up to his boss and his boss. And so a gentleman named uh, Captain Carlson, who used to be my commanding officer of SEAL Team 1, who was at that point. Commander Carlson, um, during my application process, he had subsequently been promoted. He was the, the head SEAL community manager in uh, Naval uh, Bureau of Naval Personnel, and he was the final authority. You know, so all these guys up the chain had said denied, denied. You know, there's a stop loss. SEALs can't get out of the community. And uh, he had remembered me, and he and I had a great relationship. Uh, I worked really well with him, had a good reputation of the team. So everybody said no, and he said yes. So, you know, talk about during your career in your life where a couple different men have made some pivotal decisions that kind of shaped the entire course of your life. He'll never know it, but this guy, Captain Carlson said no, or said yes, when everyone else said no, you know, and he literally changed the course of my life. That is amazing. I mean, honestly, like how fortuitous, uh, serendipitous, whatever the world you want to use. It's just, uh, it goes that way sometimes in the military, you know, just one person uh, literally can, can hold your future in their hands. Which is why a lot of times a lot of groups I speak to, you know, students, Division One college teams, and you know, guys that are guys and girls that are striving for bigger stuff. So I always tell them, like, listen, everybody is spring loaded to tell you no because it's a lot easier. I said all you got to do is find that one person who's going to say yes. You just got to find one. That's it. Um, you just have to keep going until you find that one who'll say yes. And so it turns out that's true. Okay, so you get the yes, uh, and you're headed to flight school. Now, this is somewhat of a uh, lengthy process in and of itself as well, correct? It is, um, but it was remarkably easy. Once you get the yes, hey, you're accepted to go to Army flight school, um, you know, the Navy was more than happy at that point to let you go. So, you know, one day I'm an E-7 in the Navy, and I go down to MEPS, and the next day I get sworn in, and I'm an E-7 in the Army, and I head down to Fort Rucker, Alabama for flight school and Warren Officer Candidate School. So after that point, I mean, it's pretty easy because now I'm in the Army. I'm truly in the Army. 
Um, I do the, whatever it is, the 12 weeks of warrant officer candidate school. I get commissioned as a, as a warrant officer. And then I start flight school a couple weeks later. And in retrospect, you know, that was my first regular army experience, which is kind of funny because my entire time in the SEAL teams, I went to a lot of army schools. You know, I went to airborne school, I went to Pathfinder school, jump master school, um, you know, JTAC school, all run by the army. Um, you know, and I mock the army at every turn because that's what we do in the SEAL teams is we mock the army. And I just found it ironic that after all those years of bad mouthing the army, here I am, you know, waving the green banner. Um, but once I was in, you know, I was fully in. I'm, I'm kind of a, a big proponent of whatever unit you're in at the time is the best place to be and everyone else sucks. And I think that's everyone should hold that standard because, you know, wherever you are, that's the greatest place to be. And if you don't believe that, you know, you're not making it any better. Now, gee, see, that's funny. Now, in 20 years of the military, everybody I run into tells you that the last unit they were in was the greatest unit they were ever in and the current one they're in sucks the most. That's usually the general army motto. Yeah, but no way. You can't look back. It's never <laughs> looking back never works. You know, you can never go back. You always got to look forward. Um, but I had a great time at flight school. You know, it was the first time in almost 13 years. All I was in charge of was me. I was in charge of being at the right place at the right time and studying some information. And I got to fly for four hours a day for free and it didn't cost me anything. So which was amazing because kind of the backstory to that was um you know, I had a, a commercial multi-engine license on my own. I've been flying for, for a few years on my own, but I had to pay for it all. And so I probably blew through, you know, $20,000 of, of flight training on my own before as a civilian before I ever applied to Army Flight School. So I knew how much it cost for an hour of flying. And so I remember coming home to my wife and looking at her and saying, you know what? I think I stole from the Army today. I flew a Huey helicopter for four hours today, and they paid me for it. So – that year I spent in flight school was one of the best, you know, of my 30 years because it was relatively low stress. I wasn't in charge of anybody but me, and I got to fly every day. So, I mean, I was I was happy as a clam. That was a good period for us. Compare the feeling for me, getting your trident or getting your flight wings. So a lot of people ask me that, Mark, and it's completely different. Um, That's why I didn't ask you which one was better. I just wanted you to compare them. Yeah, so compare when I got my trident – it was it was actually just a relief, a complete relief because there's so much pain, like physical pain and mental anguish, and you know this mental and emotional roller coaster of six or seven months, however long it takes you to get through buds. On am I going to make it to the end? You know, and up till even a couple days before graduation, you know, you're like that final run or final swim or whatever you do. You're like, there's there's a chance I might not make this. So. Getting your trident, it's very empowering, but you're you're exhausted at the end. You know, there's very little time for you to think, holy cow, how cool is this? What have I got to look forward to? Um, now, when I got my wings, I was so excited because I wasn't necessarily emotionally or physically beat down. I mean, I was chomping at the bit because, one, there's a war on, and, two, I knew I was going to the 160th, and that's a whole other story, but I'd already been selected while I was in flight school. Um so, I mean, I had some stuff to look forward to. You know, there was there was some momentum going. Um, so, academically, it wasn't as hard or or difficult for me to earn my wings as it was a trident. Um, but at that time, I had a lot of really neat, empowering stuff to look forward to, you know, once I got out of flight school. When you do get out of flight school, um, I mean, obviously, there's two wars going on at this point in time because it's well into 2003 by the time you're set. Flight school is a year easily, right? 
Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there are two wars kicked off at this point in time. How quickly do you end up actually in the 160th and where are you heading? So I actually went through the process, the assessment process while I was in flight school. So I had orders to the 160th before I ever graduated from flight school. That's pretty nice. That's probably not common though, right? (laughs) No, not common at all. In fact, uh, there's only a handful. I was the very first one to do it um, because they allowed me to assess uh, as a flight school student because I had the the SEAL background and they'd done it for a couple Ranger Regiment guys and another uh, Special Forces guy. Um, it's not really that common. Usually you got to spend, you know, X amount of years in the regular army gaining experience and night vision goggle time and, and a couple deployments. How much, um, uh, you, you brought it up, I'm sorry to cut you off. How much did the fact that you were a SEAL play into, you just mentioned the decision that was made to kind of fast track you, but how much of that helps you out along the way, if any at all, or are you just in such a separate field that it didn't matter? You know, it helps. Uh, I get asked that quite a bit too. And it, it helps in that you thoroughly understand the ground forces mission because that's what the 160th is solely focused on. They are focused right. on, you know, getting the customers on target anywhere in the world, plus or minus 30 seconds, no fail, no questions asked, regardless of the environmental or enemy situation. I mean, that's just what we do. It's what the unit does. So understanding that from a tactical background is immensely helpful as far as actually flying the helicopters and, you know, all the technical aspect of that, not helpful at all, except that it's a familiar environment. Um, the mentality, you know, the no fail, I mean, that that is a familiar emotion and a familiar environment. But physically flying the helicopter and the complexities that the 160th pilots deal with on a, and the crew chiefs that they deal with on a daily basis, um, I mean, I completely got my ass handed to me because, um, you know, my peers in my class – when I got the 160, they were all multi-thousand-hour Army aviators, and here I am, you know, with my 200 hours right out of flight school. So yeah, I was a cool guy for being a SEAL, but when it came to actually being an aviator, you know, I was I was really really having to play catch up with some phenomenal, uh, talented and experienced aviators, you know. But on the other hand, you know, three years down the road, we were probably equal because it took them that long to kind of understand the mission, understand the sense of urgency, truly understand supporting the ground force, you know. So it takes some time to equalize it, but it just comes from two different backgrounds. I don't know if that really answered your question. No, gotcha. I understand. All right, let's get back to you get fast-tracked into SOAR. Go ahead. Um, so I graduated flight school one day, and the next day I packed up my family and drove up to Fort Campbell and reported to the 160th. Um, and I was in Green Platoon. I was in MH-47 Green Platoon for six or seven months. And uh, nine days after graduating from Green Platoon, I was in Bagram, Afghanistan, flying co-pilot on my first direct action mission. Um, coincidentally, flying the SEAL Team 6 guys and the best man for my wedding, you know, pops up in the companionway of the Chinook and pats me on the shoulder and smiles at me. So, you know, he was the first guy that I flew and put in on a target nine days after I graduated from Green Platoon. That's uh, a uh, small world, obviously, right? Small military. <laughs> very much, very much. Okay, so you're in Afghanistan. This begins the first of 16 deployments in 13 years. Yep. Um, let's, uh, it, it's hard to ask you what stands out or, you know, it's just too many things that, that go on. But um, give, me your, give me the memory of your first engagement in combat as a pilot. So I thought from being in the SEAL teams, you know, you always like to think, we probably buy into our own hype a little bit. And I hate to say that, but you think you're prepared for everything. 
you know, well, I've seen this, I've done it, you know, I know what gunfire sounds like, but I will tell you, uh, I was out of my element in the fact that now I was a pilot, like on the ground, I knew what to be paranoid of. I know what things look like from the ground forces perspective. Um, but I'm not afraid to tell anybody that my first direct action assault as a co-pilot at MH 47, you know, this $86 million helicopter carrying, you know, the nation's tier one assaulters in the back. Um, one, I was really, really nervous, and I'm not actually afraid to say that because the first time you do anything, you're not quite sure, you know, that you have all your your eggs in one bat or you have all your skills together. Um, so I was nervous, and it's an extremely complex helicopter, and no matter how much you train um, at the 160th prior to your first deployment, it doesn't adequately prepare you for all the complexities going on, you know, when you hit a target with four helicopters and 60 assaulters and, you know, eight radios going at the same time. So um, I was paired up with some really, really experienced, uh, fully mission qualified instructor pilots, which was the right answer at that time because they knew I was just a dumb co-pilot. Um, so that was helpful. But, I mean, I was a little over. I completely did what I was supposed to. But, you know, mentally, it's kind of an overwhelming experience. And, of course, subsequent deployments, when you start seeing the templates and understanding the operating mentality, it gets a little bit easier and you, you know, you really get your momentum going. But yeah, that first, first few assaults, um, because the one sixties has an extremely high standard for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. um, on the way they do business that, uh, I mean, it's, you're never quite there. You're always striving to make sure you're meeting the standards. I mean, there's never a night where you can just kind of sit back and, and let things happen. You always got to be driving the train. When do you start to get a sense in combat that you feel like you're comfortable I mean, is it on that first deployment after a couple of missions, or does it take a couple of deployments, a couple of rotations? No, I, I would say it takes a few rotations. You know, at that point, we were doing 90 days on and 90 days off. Okay. Um, and that changed, you know, throughout throughout the war as it progressed years and years. But, uh, you know, I bet it was probably five or six deployments before I got to the point where something was routine. And I say routine. It's not routine like – like someone thinks, I mean, cause every single night is something different. You may fly in the same areas and you know, the terrain is familiar and the, the planning cycle is familiar, but every single assault, you know, is something different because you're dealing with different terrorists, every single assault, you know, and it's a different compound, every assault. And so nothing was ever actually the same. Um, now within a single deployment, you could kind of get some familiarity going, but one deployment was never like the next, you know, because the political situations were always different. Every single deployment, the target sets were always different. Um, the personalities of the customers we were carrying, you know, because within that span of 10 years or whatever, um, you know, I would see uh, case in point, uh, a complete stud warrior, a captain Bartholomew from two seven five uh, Ranger battalion out of Fort Lewis, you know, when I was brand new, I was working with him when he was a brand new captain. Um, at the end of it, he was the, the regimental commanding officer of the 75th Ranger Regiment. You know, so that's a vast that's a vast length of time um, for guys to be changing and people rotate out and personalities and you're relearning, um, you know, different hard lessons. So I guess all that to say is no deployment um, was ever the same. They always changed, but you have some continuity within a particular deployment. Let's stay with some of those, quote, hard lessons you talked about. Uh, simple question. You ever crash? Uh, no. 
Not exactly. Why pause? It seems like a pretty straightforward <laughs> question. Either you crashed or you didn't. <laughs> well, there've been there's been some really hard ones. Okay, you know, ripped off ripped off some landing gear and and some stuff that really um, probably should not have turned out well, but everybody made it back. Well, and that, that, uh, then from that point, it was successful. But give me kind of an example of what happened. Um, you know, believe it or not, I would love to say that enemy the enemy was always our our biggest worry, but uh, in Afghanistan in particular, um, the environment, the terrain, yeah, the terrain and the environment is extremely unforgiving. Um, I've, you know, because at that point, you know, in an MH 47, you're browning out at 200 feet at nighttime. And when you got a flight of four, it just erupts into this complete zero, zero sandstorm. Um, so I've landed, you know, landed hard, lost visibility, ripped off a landing gear, um, had to fly back and have uh, mattresses and pallets stacked up so you could land at level. Um, I've ripped off a ramp on a landing. Some of it was my fault. Some of it was the other guy on the controls. Um, we've been in a dust cloud. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, he and I flew together probably for 500 hours in several deployments. Um, you know, it gets really disorienting in the dust cloud. Of course, the helicopters now, they have systems where they mitigate that and you're not really flying it anymore the autopilot's flying it but you know i'm in a dust cloud i get disoriented he takes the controls for me tries to make it better he makes it worse and i grab him from him and between the two of us somehow we pop out of this dust cloud you know at 40 degree angle of bank and pointed at a sand berm and and so those things happen frequently enough um that i guess you just kind of stop thinking about them i mean there was other other events where the same gentleman uh he and i land the rangers get off. They start assaulting a target. And here comes a guy with a uh, a chest rig, you know, running at the helicopter, trying to blow us up. And of course, my best friends, the rangers, you know, turned them into pink mist, um, and a, the vest didn't detonate. And so, there's just a whole lot of these events that um, a lot of times you don't think about until somebody says, you know, hey, tell me a story, which is kind of silly because, um, you know, it's like telling a comedian, hey, tell me something funny. When you yeah. put on the spot, you don't think about it. He kind of has kind of has to get drawn out of you. When you think about the amount of, and I use this word often when it comes to combat synergy that had to take place between your job, the guys on the ground, uh, the timing of mission, incursion, extract, extraction, uh, all that that comes into play uh, on any given mission. Are you ever in awe, uh, you know, not only how good we are at what we do, how good you guys are as the 160th at what you guys do, but uh, just in general, uh, the, the precision that we can operate with? Absolutely. And after doing that for almost 14 years, um, you know, it just gets better and better. I mean, I thought we were really good at the beginning of my career in the 160th. And then at the end, you know, when I was starting to kind of figure out, how, hey, it's time for me to leave the unit – and you start seeing newer guys coming in, and while they may lack a lot of tactical experience, you know, holy cow, are they smart and capable, you know, and raring to go, kind of like, you know, what I was 10 years ago. Um, but, yeah, the synergy of when you get in, in a, for example, when we would deploy, you know, we would be in a compound with our customers, whether it was the Ranger Regiment guys, SEAL Team 6 guys, you know, uh, a Delta Squadron, whatever the case may be. We're all in a compound together. Everybody's living together, and everybody kind of has the same skin in the game. And so when you you live like that, you develop a personal relationship. And 
you know, like everything else, when they stop being customers and they start being Bill and John and Jane and right. people with faces and families and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you really find yourself with a different mentality and a different commitment to making sure that everything works every single night. And then it becomes less about your success and it really becomes more about the team's success. Um, and ultimately, not to be too dramatic, but making sure that John and Jane and Bill and all these people that you eat with every day and work out in the gym with, making sure that they come home every single night, you know, and you really develop a commitment for that. And so the customers have the same regard for us. Um, you know, they're not going to draw us into a place to come get them where they know we're going to get shot down. And the AC 130s are over top, you know, we're eating dinner with them too. And, uh, you know, they put their neck out to make sure that they're keeping bad guys off of us while we're inbound to the target. So when you say synergy, absolutely. You know, and some deployments would have better mixes of, of forces than others and personalities. But more often than not, you get a good team together of the ground forces, the air support, you know, the 160th guys, and then, you know, the talk where everybody's supporting you, weather guys, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you get a rocking team going. Um, I mean, you can put away some bad guys in short order. Let's talk about Bill and John and everybody you mentioned. You were fortunate enough to bring everybody home, but obviously you probably flew with guys within your unit who unfortunately didn't make it home or things gone bad. I mean, it's combat. It's bound to happen. Um, what does it What does it do for you? What, what does it make you think about? And furthermore, how often when you get in that pilot seat do you ever think about, I might not come home after this? So I don't know how everyone else deals with it, um, but yeah, you're right. Um, I skipped over the fact that yeah, there are fatalities. There, there. I think at my last count, when I had my retirement ceremony, May 31st, um, I took a final tally. You know, and someone said, "Well, what are you going to miss the most?" And I made a part of my retirement speech. I said, "You know what?" I said, "I'm going to miss a whole bunch of things." I said, "But right now, I took my final count, and since 9/11, I've lost 38 friends." And those aren't just ambiguous names that I happen to talk to once or twice a week. You know, these are guys that I knew, their wives, their kids, their parents. Um, you know, and there's 38 of them. And those are both in the SEAL teams and the 160th and, and a couple of regular Army aviators as well. So in my mind, I don't, that's a lot for me. Um, so when you say, how does it affect you? Um the job that we were all doing, whether it's the ground force or in the helicopters, I mean, you still got to go out there every single night and that's just the way it is. And so I, I don't think anyone ever, you honor them. Um, but I think there's really a, a really neat and powerful code that everyone understands that you mourn them, but this is what we're doing. And if it happened to have been me last night that didn't make it home, these guys do the same thing. You know, we have a little memorial in the compound. It's very concise brief and meaningful and then everyone gets back to work you know now of course you know those people that perish they're they're enshrined they're revered you know there's memorials for them and all that kind of stuff but within the scope of that deployment everyone else goes back to work and because you have to and honestly i think that's right. probably the best way to honor sacrifice and, and their passing is to go out there and tear somebody up and make them pay for it and i think really you know that's kind of how everybody looked at it um, it's tragic, but it's kind of the job that we were called to do. Mike, when I was 
deployed in my first one, we would go out on missions routinely. You know, there would be mornings I'd wake up, and I, I, I've said this often on the podcast, I just get a sinking feeling in my stomach. Something bad's going to happen today. How many times can you get in a vehicle, drive around Baghdad, and not have something bad happen to you? And I just would have a sinking feeling in my stomach. Did that ever happen to you as a pilot? Did you ever have that, you know, these these conditions are just not ideal for us. This, this is set up poor for us. I mean, do you ever just get a bad feeling when you get in the pilot seat? You know, to tell you the truth, I think I can honestly say no. Um, and one may be just my way of dealing with it. Um, I never got in the seat and thought, geez, this isn't going to go well. Um, I think part of it is um, the way we do business, per- perhaps in JSOC and and with the assaulters and stuff, is that we always kind of made sure that we always had the upper hand. Um, the times that things went wrong were things that we didn't plan on, you know, like, right. Hey, we got troops in contact. Everybody gets out of bed without any planning to speak of, gets in a helicopter and goes, try and make something happen. Those are when bad things would happen. Um, but generally our planned assaults, you know, we always made sure that we, we were the overwhelming force, but to answer your question, no, I never got in the helicopter thinking, you know, this is going to be the night or, Oh my gosh, this feels like it's not going to work mainly because I wouldn't let myself do it. Um, now I will tell you, as I got further on in my deployments, when I started getting in deployment number 10, 11, 12, um, and I'm looking around and the other guys, cause at that point then we were all old guys, um, you know, and they're getting shot down or, you know, they're getting distinguished flying crosses or getting their aircraft completely riddled. And, and it was becoming more and more frequent amongst us old guys. You start thinking to yourself, you know, is this the night or how many times can I do this before, you know, statistically, it doesn't work right, out. Right, yeah. And, and we would sit around and talk about that, and everybody kind of thought the same thing. You know, like, how many times can we do this? How many deployments can we do before, you know, it ends up being ours? Um, you know, and that's kind of the time where you decide, hey, I think I'm going to go out to the regular Army for a little while, or, hey, I think I'm going to take a break, or I'm going to retire. Um, you know, um, you can only do that for so long. And I think you talk to any ground force guy, they kind of realize it, too, that there's a shelf life for that. Um, but anyway, back to your original question. No, I never got in the helicopter with that sinking feeling thinking, um, you know, this isn't going to go well. And like I said, that's probably just my method of dealing with it because it's not a great way to, to go into an assault. Did your wife or your family ever say to you, Mike, how long are you going to do this for? I mean, how many, you've done nine deployments. Isn't that enough? You've done 12 deployments. Isn't that enough? Like how many times, uh, uh, did, did your family member say that to you? You know, I never got that. Um, my wife was tough through it all. Um, that's, that's all she ever knew. She knew me when I was an E3, you know, going into buds and that's the only life that she ever knew. So, um, I don't think that ever, ever affected her. I mean, it affected her, but she was never not supportive saying, you know, I'm going to leave you if you don't leave the, the seal teams or if you don't leave the one sixtieth. there was never, ever that discussion. Um, I, you know, in retrospect now, it certainly takes a toll on your family and your, your marriage. Um, but she was always supportive because it's a worthy, worthy job to be doing. Of all the jobs you can do, you know, doing something where you can make bad people go away every night is, you know, everyone agrees that's kind of worth the sacrifice. Um, but no, there was never like an ultimatum or how many do you think you can do? Um, of course, now, you know, she tells me, yeah, every single night I wondered if you were going to come home. But, you know, being the wise special operations wife that she was, um, she was smart enough to never actually verbalize that at the time. But, you know, like I said, you have to have some perspective to be able to see those things in retrospect. 
Well, ultimately, you do make a decision to leave uh, the 160th and the Special Operations Community, and you get a really cushy, cool assignment. Uh, the 2nd Aviation Detachment at West Point, um, which is one of only two commands open to warrant officers. What made you take that job? How did you know it was time? So I actually didn't know it was time. Um, I was going to retire around 2016, or maybe I was going to stick it out, you know, for another three years and one success and just finish there at 30. Um, Second Aviation Detachment since 2004 has always been commanded by a 160th warrant officer. Um, it was started by Dan Gelata, if you recognize that name. He was yes. one of the legendary 160th guys um, in Somalia. Uh, he was the first 160th guy to command that, followed by another gentleman named uh John Naylor, who is a legendary Chinook flight lead at the 160th, followed by another guy, uh, CW5 Al Mack, who was uh, one of the pilots that was shot down on Roberts Ridge, um, carrying Bill Roberts. Um, and he asked me at the time, he's like, hey, uh, each commander gets to pick his successor. Would you be interested in coming out to West Point and taking command? And I'm going to retire. So that was never on my scope, um, but it was such a an honor you know, and like I said, a guy who barely graduated from high school from farm town, Illinois, who gets to go to what, who even gets to set foot on the hollow ground of West Point, let alone hold a command position there. Um, so we lived on a farm in Washington state that we'd lived on for 10 years. And I called my wife and said, Hey, do you want to do this? And, you know, within the span of about a five minute conversation, she said, yeah, let's do it. Um, so, you know, we did, we, we up and moved and then, uh, summer of 2016, we reported to West Point, did a change of command, and I stayed there for three years. And uh, one of the most rewarding experiences, surprisingly, um, one of the most rewarding experiences in my 30-year career. Why um, surprisingly? Just, well, because I always knew, you know, West Point's a legendary institution, but you don't really grasp the history behind it and all that's involved until you live there. And so you don't have a choice. Like, you have to be immersed in it. I mean, you don't have a choice. You can try and distance yourself from it, but there's a lot of American history encompassed in West Point itself, both physically, you know, and institutionally. Um, and what they do with, with young people is amazing. Um, hanging out with 4,000 West Point cadets for three years will restore your faith in the youth of America. If you had any doubts, you just need to hang out with those cadets for a year, you know, and understand that. You know, they may be on their phones too much and they may be entitled and all this other stuff that we talk about the people that are younger. Um, but what they come out of, uh, you know, is rock solid officers. And, you know, they're going to be the next joint chiefs and four star generals and and presidents of the U.S. I mean, it was a it was a very enlightening experience. When you think about the sort of impact you made as a pilot in, in the 160th on lives there versus the impact you made on young cadets at West Point, are they comparable? I think um, I would say totally different because I looked at my job in the 160th um, as it made me very, very proud, a lot of personal pride, which, you know, personal pride is probably not the greatest thing ever, but, you know, you could finish a mission at the end of the night and know for a fact that you had a little part to play in making somebody major go away. Some bad person that had bad plans that was a major player in the terrorism network, you know, went away that night because you had a hand in it. Um, you know, and it was always, um, it was always very rewarding to play a part in an assault and be able to watch that, you know, on 
international news or national news a day or two later when it came out. And you kind of smile to yourself and say, you know what? I had a part of that. Like I actually did something that mattered. You know, I wasn't flying cargo back and forth to FOBs. I wasn't, you know, doing admin missions or painting rocks or whatever. I actually had a hand in something that, that made America safer. West Point, you know, down the road, it may get the same result. Um, but I had a great time with cadets and I taught uh, what they referred to at the time was MX 400 classes. And it was leadership classes that the seniors of the first he's got prior to graduation and becoming lieutenants. And I enjoyed the flying. I got to fly, um, you know, lots of dignitaries, heads of state, but my time teaching military leadership and character development to the cadets was probably the most rewarding experience of my three years there. Because you get these, you know, I referred to them as pie-faced college kids, and they kind of laughed. I said, you're not lieutenants yet. You're little pimply-faced, pie-faced college kids. I said, but in three months, you're going to be officers in the United States Army. And so we had a lot of great discussions on, you know, what's expected of them. Here's what I learned in my 29 years, you know, take it or leave it. Um, and it was a great experience. And I, in retrospect, I think I probably got as much or more out of it than they did. But to this day, I've got a handful of cadets who are now lieutenants and captains, you know, that text me or send me emails and like, and they still call me sir, which is funny because I remind them like, hey, you do realize that, that you are right. Rank me. Me, that I'm, <laughs> yeah. That you realize you're my superior now, you know, but they're so used to it. Like, hey, sir, you know, here's what I'm doing. I've, I've gone and pinned wings on a couple of them um, that were my cadets there that are now, you know, pipe hitting lieutenants and captain aviators. Um, a couple guys are like, hey, I just graduated from ranger school. So, I mean, I get texts pretty frequently um, that I never expected would be long-lasting relationships. So, I definitely say they had as much or more of an effect on me than I did on them, but I think it was pretty mutual. Who did you pick for your successor, and how did you go about that process? Um, so, my successor right now is a gentleman named uh, Joel Rowland, who just left Fort Rucker as the uh, command chief warrant officer of the aviation branch. Um, so, uh, DA or HRC, um, gave me this list of, Hey, these are potential replacements, you know, recommend which one you think would be most fitting to the superintendent. The three-star general, Lieutenant General Williams is a superintendent at West Point right now. And of the available officers to command, I mean, that's an easy, that was an easy selection. Um, you know, Joe's a long, long time, well-respected, uh, warrant officer, head of the aviation branch, you know, so there's not a better guy in the United States Army to, one, command an aviation unit, and two, you know, be a mentor and professional development expert to these cadets, not only the ones who want to be aviators, but just, you know, to be lieutenants in general and what's expected of them as junior officers. So that was an easy pick, and we just had our change of command, like I said, May 31st, and, you know, Joe is rocking it right out of the gates. What do you miss most about wearing the uniform? Uh, well, since I've only been retired for about a month and a half, I'd say I might still be in the euphoric state, but I just had the discussion with my wife. So my uniforms are still hanging in the closet because I haven't been able to bring myself to put them somewhere because I'm so used to, to seeing them every day and all that they represent. Um, you know, and I'm kind of a geek since I was a little kid, all I ever wanted to be was in the military. I never, ever planned on being, you know, whatever, scientist, doctor, lawyer, whatever kids want to be. All I ever wanted to be since I can ever remember was being in the military. That was my profession. I didn't always know exactly what I was going to do in the military, but that's all I ever wanted to do. 
you know, and it kind of shaped itself as I got older and had likes and dislikes and, and stuff like that. But, uh, I really, really was proud and enjoyed the uniform. There was never, ever a time where I thought it was a pain in the ass to put my uniform on ever, whether it was, you know, OCPs, camis back in the day when we had those BDUs, remember those <laughs> BDUs. I do remember BDUs, um, you know, to my dress blues and, you know, contrary to that, um, the only time that I really got emotional during my retirement was after the ceremony was over and I went up to my office and because I'd done it a hundred times before I started taking my blues off and I stopped and I probably stood there for probably about a good 10 minutes, not exactly knowing, you know, what emotion I was feeling, but it hit me like, this is the last time I'm ever going to take my uniform off, you know, and I kind of got over it. Family came up, kind of knew what I was going through, but just that one minute was the only time I stopped and thought, you know, this, this is the last time I'm going to wear this thing. Now, you know, you can wear it as a retiree and all that kind of stuff, but it, it's not as meaningful. Um, so that was kind of a, a pivotal moment where I, the only time I really stopped to think about it. Um, and so I've since gotten over it. Um, but that was, that was the hardest part about wearing the uniform the last time is just realizing that it's, you know, it's the last time and things are never going to be the same. They might be better, you know, life changes. It's all about phases. Um, but that particular moment was difficult because that's what I wanted to do since I was five years old and it kind of came to an end. Mike, you don't seem like somebody who's gone through this whole experience with any regret. Obviously, you still speak passionately about, you know, your years in the service, but uh, kind of take yourself as the guy who's taken off that uniform for the last time. Would you go back at any point in time and give younger Mike a different piece of advice? So when I do some of these, you know, keynotes and stuff for corporations and, you know, division one teams and, and stuff like that, the theme, and I don't actually call it that, but the theme literally is be prepared and no regrets. And I know that sounds kind of trite, but this career, and I get a lot of, oh my gosh, what an amazing career. You know, you've had a super career. And the first thing I tell them is, you know what? I didn't plan a single part of this. All this great stuff and shiny stuff you see in the uniform, all the stuff that you see was never, ever in my plan, ever. What I started out in 1990 to do, all I want to do was be a Navy pilot. That was my whole goal, and I never got there. You know, so all these other things that I did were literally at the time what I thought were detours. Well, I'll do this until I can get to the point where I can be Navy pilot. Well, I'll do this until I'm qualified for this. And so – what they really were were closed doors that all I did was look for the next open one. So like, well, I know I can't do this. What's the one that I can do? And so it's this kind of circuitous route through this 30 years of just taking advantage of opportunities when they were available. Even if I wasn't quite sure for something I wanted to do, I just did it because it was available. Um, you know, and it worked out. I mean, there's a lot more to it of not quitting and kind of having a vision and, and all that kind of stuff. But, I didn't plan this career. Now, once I got on a track, you know, once I decided, Hey, I want to be a seal, then yeah, I'm 100% headstrong. Going to make it happen. There's no chance that it's not going to happen. Um, but when I was a seal, I never had my mind. No, I think I'm going to transfer the army and be a helicopter pilot. It was just one of those opportunities that I saw was available. And when I decided to do it, then I was all in. And so, like I said, it was just kind of this zigzag, through all these different opportunities, but it was nothing that I ever had planned. Uh, it was definitely not how I envisioned my career going 30 years ago. Um, but to say I have regrets, 
Absolutely not. And I think my only regret was had it turned out the way I planned, I would have been sorely disappointed. <laughs> Not many people ever say that. It's an interesting uh, sort of anecdote to the whole story. <laughs> yeah. But no, absolutely no regrets. There's, I'm not sure that I could tell young Mike anything because he was kind of a jackass. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I actually listened to anybody. Um, but I think I would only give myself the same advice that I give other young people that I mentor now is just that, you know, that just don't get hung up on the doors that are closed. You need to pay attention to the ones that are open. And just because it wasn't what you had in mind doesn't mean that that's not, you know, where you're going to shine. It's not, you know, your future might be there. You just don't see it yet. And then of course the ever popular don't take no for an answer. You know, all you got to do is find that one person that's going to tell you yes. On that note, uh, I won't say you had an amazing career because you've been told that a million times, but I will say I hope that through these speeches and everything that you're doing in your post-military career, I feel like you're still impacting as many lives as you did if you were still wearing the uniform, whether it's at West Point or in the 160th. So to that end, uh, just certainly congratulations on an amazing career, but certainly uh, you know everything that you uh, you have gone through and everything that you did is a testament to the idea that uh, you know you clearly loved the military and love being a part of this whole thing. You touched almost every level of the organization and uh, certainly 30 years is, is nothing to be, uh, uh, nothing to shake a stick at because not many guys do it. No, not people last that time. And I, I had the opportunity to retire at 20. And, uh, you know, of course, if you'd asked me this question in the middle of a 90 day deployment, I would have told you, Hey, this sucks. I can't wait to retire. So, you know, when you're, when you're away from the epicenter, you only remember all the good stuff. So it, kind of depends on on when you would catch me um but looking over it now you know there's there's no part of my life i think that i would have changed even if i'd had the opportunity and i had lots of opportunities and i just kind of stuck with with what i had going um but i got to see a lot of neat things and more importantly um you know even my retirement speech which was difficult for me to put out um you know, a guy, a good trusted mentor said, you know, think about all the cool things you've done and, and try and articulate that. And so when I tried to put it on paper, I couldn't remember places I'd been or legendary operations I'd been a part of. And, I, and I've been on some big ones. All I could remember, no kidding, were who I was with at the time. I could remember the people I flew with, the guys I was on trips with, you know, guys I got arrested with in some crap hole town in the Philippines somewhere or, you know, I could only remember the people. I couldn't remember the events themselves. They were all tied to people's whose, you know, lives have shaped mine and vice versa. So that's what I really got out of 30 years. Beautifully said. Mike Rutledge, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. My pleasure, Mark. And thanks a lot for your time. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Sports have a way of bringing us all together. 
And at Sleeper, we developed a fantasy platform designed to make leagues more fun and personal. Sleeper includes an integrated chat and every feature you could want for your NFL, NBA, and even eSport leagues. Plus, it's completely free with no ads. See why millions have made Sleeper the fastest-growing fantasy platform. Download Sleeper on the App Store or Google Play today.